Who's going to win tomorrow's stage at the Tour de France? I bet you think you know. That's part of the fun of being a cycling fan. Well, we here at Vela News have a fun game for all of you tour prognosticators out there. It's our stage win challenge. You can go to velonews.com forward slash pick, fill out a form, and write down which rider you think will win the following day's stage. If you're right, you could win an Outside Plus subscription and you'll be entered into the drawing for our grand prize, a brand new 2021 Specialized Tarmac Extra Fast Racing Bike. That's right, there's 21 stages of the tour, and that is 21 Outside Plus subscriptions up for grabs, as well as a 2021 Specialized Tarmac. So let's see here, we're recording this on a Thursday. Tomorrow's stage, stage seven, 246 kilometers, hills, Finishes with a pretty tough little kick there. My guess would be Matthew Vanderpool or Julian Alaphilippe, maybe even Tadej Pogacar. But if you have a different pick, you should go to velonews.com forward slash pick, write down which rider you think is going to win, and you could be entered to win an Outside Plus subscription or a 2021 Specialized Tarmac. It's our stage win challenge. Check it out. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a busy Thursday morning here at the home offices. We have a lot to talk about today on the podcast. We just watched Mark Cavendish win his second Tour de France stage of the race, bringing him to number 32 all time. Uh, the other day when we were opining about his win, it was kind of like, God, oh, it's great to see Cav back. But you know that Merck's record still kind of out there. Not a big deal if he doesn't break it just to see him great winning a race. Well, guess what? That Merck's record uh, is looking like more and more of a thing for him. And we're going to keep following that throughout the race. Uh, on today's podcast, second half of the show, we have Andrew Hood and James Start chiming in from Paris, talking about some of the legacies and some of the history at stake in the 2021 Tour de France with Pogacar, Roglic, um, Egan Bernal and Ineos Grenadiers and some of the bigger, wider topics swirling around the GC picture. But before we get to them, I wanted to talk Tour de France tech because we're only a few stages in here at the Tour and already we've had some really interesting tech stories going on. We've seen some uh, cool bike galleries come up. The uh, time trial provided an interesting look at the time trial bikes and some of the cool innovative stuff going on in cockpits. Sounds like Mark Cavendish himself is having an innovative uh, trigger shifter on his bike to help him change gears in those sprints. And so I wanted to have on Ben Delaney, who wears many hats here at Velenews, including our tech editor hat, to take us through some of the storylines going on in Tour de France tech. Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, Fred. Hey, everybody. So, Ben, one of the challenges of covering tech at this Tour de France has been access to the bikes. In a normal year, you would be over there and uh, you'd be able to walk through the paddocks and talk to some of the mechanics and uh, get a bike handed to you that you could photograph or look at. Um, that's not the case this year. It definitely wasn't the case last year. So give the readers, uh, the listeners, a little bit of a sense of how we've been having to go about reporting on tech at this year's race. Sure. So normally, yeah, like you said, I would be nosy and taking my own nose around uh, team to team, bike to bike, looking for all the little bits and bobs. Now I am much more like any other reader where my nose is just pressed up against my computer screen and my laptop trying to make out what the heck is going on. We are lucky enough to have veteran 
photojournalist James Start on the ground for us, and he does beautiful top, beautiful photography, and has been sending over bits. So it's a it's just like a two man game of hey James, can you please go shoot this, and he'll go shoot things, or he'll take photos of bikes that I don't uh, wasn't aware of, and and then we just try to to pull out the most interesting bits from there. And one interesting bit I was uh, interested to find. The day of Cav's first win, uh, James had shot Mark's bike maybe a couple days prior. Um, and we found that he had a singular sprint shifter on his handlebar. And, you know, sprint shifters are a part of Shimano's DI2 electronic shifting system. And one of the, the best things about electronic shifting is you can put shifters wherever you want. So instead of like, you know, an STI lever or an ergo power lever where there's, you know, one functional place to have a, a mechanical lever that pulls on cables with buttons, you can stick a button wherever you like. Um, and sprint shifters work, they're unidirectional. And so the normal arrangement wherever they're positioned is that you've got one button that moves the derailleur in one direction and another button moves the derailleur in the other direction. So typically uh, riders will have them set on the drops where they can access them with their thumbs or like on the inside of the drops, uh, one, one button going each way. Cavendish has a singular trigger on the right hand drop to only go into a harder gear, which makes sense if, if the point is in sprinting, you're just winding up the speed. Um, so for some people, I'm sure that's 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 a bit of a yawn. But for me, I love these these details and the, not just the mechanical setup, but the psychological setup of like what is the absolute best arrangement um, for a rider to win with their gear. Uh, Caleb Ewan had another um, pretty unique setup. Uh, we first saw at the Giro that while the rest of the team is running 12 speed, it can't be. Caleb is running 11 speed and that's not the novel part, but the novel part is how the thumb shifters have extensions uh, pointed down towards the drop. So it's a lot easier to reach that, uh, that button to activate the shift again into the harder gear. And you know, why Shimano calls it a sprint shifter is so you can keep all your fingers wrapped around the handlebar while wrenching on the thing with you know, all the strength you can muster in the hectic melee of a sprint and not having to release your grasp to take a finger off and reach towards the brake lever to shift. So, you know, two, um, different ways to accomplish the same goal, which is to keep your hands firmly wrapped around the bars and be able to drop it into a bigger gear as you're winding up your banana sprint. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, that's really interesting stuff, but one thing I keep coming back to, especially with the Cavendish one trigger thing is like, you know, before every cat three out there goes and buys one trigger shifter and installs it, um, what would you say are the potential drawbacks for that type of setup for mere mortals like um, the, the Fred Dryers out there who are hoping to like win the town line sprint on the group ride like why should i probably not go out there and install this setup on my bike <laughs> well i think fred dryer you're your own special category so we'll, we'll set that aside for a moment but the one downside i've seen or i've experienced with sprint shifters uh, particularly you know shimano's version is that it takes very little contact with them to activate a shift which is a great thing um 
if that's if shifting is your intention. Um, one thing I've noticed is like having my hands in the drops, like coming down to descent, like Flagstaff or whatever, bumping this the shift button unintentionally and moving it into an easier gear, still thinking about a big gear. And then I go to stand up and, and you expect a lot of resistance and you get very little resistance. So um, that's that's a, a downside to that. If you make it super easy to, to access where your hands already are and uh, there's such a fine trigger um, mechanism that you can accidentally shift. So that's that's a downside. But in general, I think they're sweet. Like I said, it's one of the, the best things about electronic groups is you can put these buttons wherever you like. In addition to on the drops, we see a lot of riders having them on the tops of the handlebars up close to the stem, usually underneath. Um, so there when you're riding on the tops, you can just you know flick your thumb and shift. And, and for those, I see no reason why you wouldn't want uh want to have those regardless of you know what level riding you're doing i'm still not sold i'm not going to be winning any townline sprints anytime soon i think i'm gonna i'll steer clear of that stuff but all the cat threes out there if you really want to be cool like mark cavendish i guess you just have to install one of them on there uh so you can get your lightning quick shift when you're like sprinting against your buddies for uh who's gonna buy the beer that night now ben sounds like uh, it's not just been the sprint bikes and the sprint setups where we've been seeing some innovative uh, cockpit setups, but um, time trial bikes as well. You know, we're recording this Thursday, Wednesday. I had the big individual time trial and James Start took a number of good photos of TT bikes and their cockpits and sent them along to us. And what were some of the um, elements of the TT cockpits that caught your eye? Well, there it's all about the, the customization, right? I mean, this is like the F1 level in, in pro racing. And it's interesting to see... That, you know, even at the Tour de France, not everybody gets the good stuff. Um, so, while well, you know, if you if you happen to be Philippe Ogana, yes, you're going to get the absolute best 3D printed, customized. Um, money is no object. But a lot of the racers, even you know, some of those contending for the GC, still don't have the absolute best. So that's that's where we see some of the arms race of of pro bike racing um, figure in. And and in addition to the aerodynamic benefit and you know mechanical gains i also think that's a, a fascinating cross-section of rider psychology because you know riders want to have the absolute best and they want to have the absolute lightest and while they can feel weight they can't necessarily feel aerodynamic benefit or lack thereof um, i was just talking to nathan barry at Cannes, he's an engineer at candale uh his phd in applied aerodynamics obviously sharp guy knows what he's talking about and and he was explaining how a lot of work they've done with the EF education Nepo team has been, you know, essentially to get the writer's confidence in science because you can show a lot of writers white papers and you know, hand them a, a aerodynamics textbook and they're like, yeah, whatever. I want the lightest thing because I can pick it. I can feel that. I can't feel arrow. So he developed an app uh, to show writers with their own data. Like you take a, a Strava file, a ride file from a stage and show them two different setups and say, okay, if you were on this bike in this setup, here's where you would have been faster or slower at any given point on course. And if you're on this setup, here's where you would have been faster or slower. So they can really personalize the data for them and give them confidence in the gear that they're using. And so I think that's, that's another a very interesting point of where the science and psychology intersect for, for bike racers. 
Yeah, that's funny. I mean, you and I have both attended many bike launches and sat there as product designers and people in standing in wind tunnels have gone on and on about the aerodynamic or the weight or the whatever benefits of the newest, coolest, lightest, greatest bicycle. And I mean, as journalists, we're always a little bit skeptical and a little sort of like, okay, you know, that's great. You know, we, we don't have wind tunnel data to see exactly what's going on here. So we'll kind of take your word for it. But it's really interesting to know that some of the most skeptical people out there are the riders themselves, um, who, you know, if you look at the grand scheme of things technically are sort of an extension of the marketing of these bike companies, but they themselves are sometimes the ones who need the most convincing to get on the new technology because, you know, I understand it. Like, I I know that you tend to ride a lot of different types of bicycles because they come through your way, but I tend to be a person who, you know, I find a bike that I like, I ride it for a number of years, and when I get on a new bike, it feels a little different and feels a little weird. And when you're a rider at that level and you're getting on a new bike two, sometimes three times a year, um, there has to be a psychological element where you think, you know, boy, that that one model like three bikes ago actually was my favorite one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, Cavendish was an interesting case study there with with sprint shifters. You know, when those first came out, or I'm sorry, when uh, DI2 electronic shifting first came out, he didn't like it. He wanted to stick with mechanical because he liked the feel of being able to feel the engagement of the shift uh, at the lever. Uh, And it wasn't until, you know, Shimano came out with the sprint shifter buttons where he's like, okay, that is a tangible benefit. I'm making that switch over. And then there's some... Yes, riders are very, very much a part of the marketing for many of these brands. Uh, but then sometimes pro riders do, in fact, affect future products, such as just simple things like the length of wires on sprint shifters. It used to be you could only – they were super short, so they could go from the handlebar or from the lever just to the inside of the handlebar. And we, I remember it being, I think it was 2015, uh, looking at when Quickstep was Edix Quickstep, how the mechanics were – we're cutting and splicing wires to run um, sprint shifters out to other places on the bike up closer to the stem just because that's what they want to do. And then lo and behold, you know, Shimano, not too long after that, introduced to the marketplace, you know, stock versions of that. So what else do you have your eyes on? Um, again, you know, if this were a normal year, you would be walking through the paddocks, looking at tires, looking at cockpits, looking at different bike models. You know, we're only uh, less than a week into this Tour de France. We haven't hit the mountains yet. Um, what are some other tech stories that you anticipate seeing as we get into the um, the Pyrenees and then the Al- Alps and then the Pyrenees? I mean, or do you expect to see different tires being used, innovative gearing? Um, what what else do you think will be part of the you know the the tech story of the twenty twenty one Tour de France? Uh, wheels and tires. Wheels and tires, wheels and tires. So for gearing, um, you know, modern gear range is enough that riders don't have to alter, or I should say mechanics don't have to alter the bikes uh, much, if at all, one stage to the next. You know, we used to see, you know, cassettes being changed out or sometimes chain rings being changed out going from flat stages to mountain stages. Now um, the range is such that they're, they're just good to go, which I'm sure mechanics appreciate. Tires is a changing thing. Uh, tubulars were long the only type of tire you would see in the Pro Peloton. Now we're seeing an increasing number of clincher tires. Uh, that used to be a, a, a separator of like, well, pros ride tubers, the rest of us ride clinchers. Now the world's best pros are riding clinchers. So that's uh, an interesting thing. You could make the argument that brands like Specialized are pushing that and driving that, but Specialized would, uh, I would say, defend themselves by saying, well, this is a science-based thing. We're seeing lower rolling resistance and in some cases, better aerodynamics in using 
a clincher tire. So that's that's an interesting thing. Um, and another like gut feel versus science of whether it's tire width or tire pressure. Um, that's an interesting story. And then wheels again with the arrow versus weight. Like what's the fastest? You know, climbers these these guys who haven't had dessert in four years trying to shave like two grams off their body. It's hard to convince them. Hey, maybe you should run a slightly deeper, slightly heavier wheel because it will ultimately be faster when going uphill. That's another head scratcher for a lot of folks, but um, that's always interesting to see. Um, so those are, yeah, those are things I'll be keeping an eye on is wheels and tires. And also seeing if Jumbo Visma will indeed be running these blue tires they've been talking up so much. I know people love the blue tires. People love that story. And then they also loved this story of Matthew Vanderpool's LPC and Phoenix team, like having to scramble some poor team staffer to drive halfway across Europe and buy a set of Princeton Carbon Works wheels from Cam Wurf, which I'm still wondering, like, how did that happen? Did they did they <laughs> pretend to be some jamoke on eBay and buy those like clandestinely and then take them to uh, Vanderpool? Uh, but like the, the very weird backstory of trying to get Matthew Vanderpool fast wheels for his time trial. Both of those stories seem to have uh, blown up with all the the tech lovers out there. Well, just a last minute scramble. I mean, that's just so relatable, right? I mean, you have at least a friend who's like that. Maybe not that that uh, level of wallet, but just yeah, just a last minute scramble is is quite relatable. One of the many things we love about. Vanderpool. I've definitely done that before, before races where I'm like, I know I'll uh, use this new thing and, you know, I'll have to stay up all night and like, you know, ask a friend for it. Try these new shoes out. Oh my God. What a disaster that was. <laughs> yeah. And that's going to make all the difference. If I just make this one small change, that's, you know, that's something we've, we've touched on before is how, uh, I mean, you think of pro cyclists that have everything dialed and confidence and, and that, you know, science-based teams providing them the very best, but they're still human beings at the end of the day. And when they get stressed out, they, they will second guess themselves, their equipment. Maybe we should tweak this or tweak that. Well, Ben Delaney, thank you for coming on uh, the Vel News podcast. We're going to check in with Ben as the race goes on, because there's more tech stories bound to pop up. Um, Ben, I will let you get back to your afternoon. And we are now going to hear from James Start and Andrew Hood coming to us from somewhere in the middle of France. Hello, everyone. We are back on the Tour de France with James Start. I'm Andrew Hood. We are actually in the car driving to the finish. Uh, that's part of this Tour de France experience, at least for everyone on the race. Lots of driving. And finally, we've been kind of bundled up in the Britannia there for the first uh, four or five days, but now we are pushing into the Loire Valley. It feels like the Tour de France is finally starting. It does. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the Brittany start of the Grand Départ was a four-day kind of loop uh, around uh, northwestern France, celebrating uh, that region that's so cycling crazy. Uh, and now we are like making this journey sort of southward, crossing, crossing the country uh, from northwest down towards the center and then the southeast because we're going to be in the Alps in about two more days. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they call it uh, the Grand Boucle. 
It's like uh, the big circle around France. And, the big uh, zigzag, huh? The big zigzag this year. Um, so we're starting, uh, finally heading across uh, some of these flatter stages. Uh, today, a big, a big uh, sprint opportunity. And then tomorrow is the longest stage in the Tour de France. Uh, a real lumpy there at the finale, perhaps even a day for Peter Sagan or Mathieu van der Poel. But of course, uh, the big buzz this morning in the Star Village, you know, was really the uh, aftermath of the time trial yesterday. Front page of the keep today was Tornado Pogachar. He certainly blew a few houses down. Yeah, he did. He overwhelmed everybody. Obviously, I would love to have seen, um, you know, what Roglic at his best would have done. He lost 44 seconds after a terrible crash, and he's all bandaged up. Uh, I can't help but imagine that he was not at 100%. But, uh, you know, those guys are, like, back and forth one one day or the next. They're both really close, and Pogacar could easily have won this without without Roglic being uh, injured or, 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 you know, scraped up. Um but at the same time, it's just really a continuation of what we've been seeing for the last two years. I mean, this is a stellar, stellar talent. He makes everything look easy. And he has yet to really be confronted with any major setback outside of, say, last year when he lost about a minute 10 in the in the windy stage, minute 15 maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, he hasn't had any hard crashes or any, you know, real setbacks yet. So we'll see. The tour is still long. Um, he's obviously got the physical makeup to be the, I think, probably the next really great super champion. Um, you know, if you look at the history of the Tour de France, we kind of go with these dynasties where you get, like, this the greatest rider of his generation, be it Bernard Hinault or Eddie Merckx or Miguel Linderen, who... Who uh, or Chris Froome, who, who dominates for three, four, five years? Greg LeMond, obviously. And then in those interim years, you go for a couple of years where there's nobody, you know, people win, but they don't really. They're, they, they're one shot. And in history, they turn out to win one tour. Um, everybody in the last years has looked very good, you know, during the tour. But Pogacar is now the, the kind of the kind of rider who could win a second tour, be the first one since 2017 to win a second one, and we could be looking very well at a new dynasty. Yeah, I completely agree with that, James. The, uh, as James said, you know, every decade has had kind of this uh, dominant rider of, of that era, the last one. Really, we had a motorcycling was Chris Froome, who won, uh, you know, four yellow jerseys. Uh, he seemed destined to have number five in the bag, of course, crash. Uh, at the Dauphiné 2019, Froome is back, but man, he's not going to win this year's tour. Um, and then uh, we've had Garen Thomas, Egon Bernal and uh, Pogacar win the last three editions of the tour. So yeah, is this a transition year again? Will Pogacar, if Pogacar wins, he confirms he gets number two. We could say that the start of the Pogacar era might be upon us. Um, you know, does that mean Primoz Roglic never wins the Tour de France? You know, we'll have to see how, how it plays out in the next couple of weeks. For me, my biggest surprise in the time trial yesterday was that Pogacar did not take more time on his real direct rivals. Um, I was expecting because uh, Garen Thomas was hobbled. I mean, I was speaking to the sport director this morning at the start from Ineos, Gabriel Rash, and he said they had to work on uh, Garen Thomas a couple hours uh, yesterday morning to get him ready for that time trial because he woke up very stiff uh, in his shoulder. Of course, he dislocated his shoulder. I can't imagine trying to ride a time trial with a dislocated shoulder, even though it's all taped up and they can work on it. Still, that position, you know, you're going to lose some power and some watts. And same with uh, Roglic had that nasty crash uh, two days before the time trial so actually you have to say those guys defending themselves i think fairly well considering the conditions they came into the race yeah absolutely like as i said i thought 44 seconds on road which was was pretty amazing 
You mentioned Chris Froome. Uh, no, I don't think we're going to see Chris Froome winning the tour again. Um, but I have to say, um, Chris has has been so courageous. He, you know, he crashed hard in the first stage. Odds have been against him coming into this race. Um, odds have not been with him at the race. He's well down in the standings, and yet he, you know, he he could easily have dropped out. You know, some some champions who are so far from their best may just bag it, and he's. He's still showing up every day and getting great, great crowd response, I think, um, at the signing podium. I think people appreciate that. He's been shown so much courage to be here, to suck it up, to give it his best, even though he's really been very crippled uh, for, from first from his great crash, uh, or his horrendous crash uh, a couple of years ago, and then, you know, from the crash here on stage one. Um, and Roglic, you know, will he ever win a tour? I don't know. He seemed predestined, but... It's, it's, you know, all these guys seem predestined to greatness until they come up short. I mean, Jan Ulrich, I mean, when he won his first tour back in 1997, we were convinced this guy was going to be the next great thing. That he was going to win not five, not six, not seven, maybe ten tours. He was only about 23, I think. Um, and yet he only won one tour. Uh, so, you know, Bernal, we, we thought, destined to greatness. And... Maybe he won't win another tour. I happen to think Bernal is still pretty great, and I think I think if he was here, I think he's going to come back next year, extra motivated after winning the Giro, and um, I think he could very well uh, give be more of a challenge uh, to, to to Pogacar than anybody else here. Uh, we'll see. But yeah, uh, if Pogacar continues to ride like this, watch out. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to seeing Egon Bernal come back to the tour next year. Uh, you're exactly right. I mean, everyone was hyped up thinking he was going to be, the, you know, with the kind of Fortress Froome concept at Ineos, they were going to wrap their arms around Bernal. And the idea was like, yeah, I mean, Bernal was 21 when he won. He was the youngest rider until last year when Pagaccia became the youngest rider. So still a lot of runway for Bernal to come back and, and be effective. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, Bernal, we'll see. He's had these nagging back problems. And, uh, you know, he, he won the Giro this year, but he kind of squeaked it out, if you ask me. I mean, having a guy like Damiano Caruso put him under pressure, I mean, he's a guy, a top 10 finisher. Yeah, maybe he had a great Giro, but to see Bernal kind of struggle a little bit in the Giro kind of was a few red flags for me. Maybe he's still not 100%. Uh, you know, later, Bernal tested positive for COVID, you know, so who knows? Maybe he was kind of sick there at the end of the Giro. But yeah, it's going to be great to see Bernal back at the Tour next year. Um, but with Chris Froome, uh, you know, I, I was speaking to Rick Verbrugge the other day, talking about Chris, and you know, they said they knew already at the Tour de Romandie that he was not going to be ready to even, you know, come close to challenging for the for the Tour. They wanted to bring him, you know, for a few reasons: a, because he is Chris Froome, he deserves it; he's a champion. If Chris wants to, and it's part of what the team wants him to do, he has every right in the world to be at this Tour de France. Uh, they also want to bring him for uh, to prepare for the Vuelta. Now they're saying that's the next big goal, and really to build towards the Tour because. If Chris Froome does believe he thinks he can win one more tour, you know, it has to happen next year. It's not going to happen two or three years from now. So, you know, Chris Froome deserves that chance to ride. He has a team that's willing to pay him and give him the space. I mean, look, Mark Cavendish, everyone wrote him off, and he won a stage. Absolutely. I mean, like I said in the last podcast, I mean, class is class. Uh, I will not write off a, a, a great rider once they've, you know, they've proven themselves to be great. Chris Froome is one of those guys, so you don't count him out. Um, but... And he's, obviously, he's, I mean, I was talking with his uh, director of Sportif the other day, Lionel Marie, and he's just like, the kid is so courageous. And he said he works even harder than you can imagine. Um, so he is not giving up, and I just say chapeau. 
when Chris Froome's a kid, you know how how the average age of the of the Villeneuve's uh, team car is up there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, now, of course, another big talking point coming out of uh, out of this, these first, uh, you know, almost first week now of racing. You know, what's happened to Ineos? You know, the wheels have come off the car a little bit. But, you know, I was speaking to Gabriel Ross this morning, and he says, oh, you know, we're actually pretty satisfied with the way things are. And I said, well, what do you mean? We said, you know, Carapaz, the, he, he lost the amount of time that they thought he would lose on the time trial, which is about a minute and a half or so. Uh, they believe that Garrett Thomas, you know, kind of still in there, considering what happened to him, that he's still in the race, that he's going to get better, that, that the pain and, and aches and pains will diminish every day. Uh, you know, and Richie Port, Teo were never really going to be frontline favorites anyway, so they feel like the race is still there, they haven't even gotten to the mountains yet, haven't really gotten into the real meat of this race, and they believe that, you know, the race is still wide open. I mean, what's your take on uh, where Pogacar is right now? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I was talking with the Tom Skoysians at the start today, a little bit, a uh, friend of mine, and uh, we just chat, and he was like, you know, uh, this is only, we're only five days into this race, right? I mean, the tour is a long way to go. There's a whole lot of things that can still happen, so it's not over. However, uh, what you say about Ineos is really true for just about everybody right now. I mean, the rest of the peloton, any anybody else who hopes to still pull this tour out, win it, or be a factor, has to realize if you sit on Pogacar's wheel uh, or just try to follow uh, or and wait for the next time trial, your goose is cooked. I mean, Ineos needs to launch bombs. Uh, all the pretenders that are there in the top five, six, seven, just should, I mean, if they want to, if they want to win, somebody's going to have at least one rider or two riders or teams are going to have to start throwing some bombs, taking chances, be willing to lose it all to maybe win it all. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, right now people are, are wondering if how strong and how deep Pogacar's team is there at uh, UAE Emirates. You know, they have two rookies on that team. Uh, our own very own Brandon McNulty, who actually crashed in the time trial, wasn't seriously banged up. But if you noticed on the uh, results sheet of the time trial, he was you know way down there, expecting him to uh, do a little bit better. And then Marcus Bierg, uh, Michael Bierg, um, you know, still Formolo, some of these other guys, Rui Costa, you know, they don't really have these big brawlers to help them out on the flat. So there, some people are speculating that perhaps that is kind of a Pogacar's weak spot. You know, he could be uh, susceptible to being attacked. Uh, in the windy stages right now driving across the flats here James there is no wind there's no wind forecast tomorrow either no that's that's the thing I mean if this had been these have been windy stages this was these are stages we go across in uh, Perry Nice and you know it's just echelon against echelon the field is just splintered across the road all day long uh, but there's no wind right now uh, this is not Perry Nice I also I, I, I would say that I talked to <clears throat> my friend Alan Piper who was the DS last year who really uh coached and, and the, was the mastermind behind the strategy that, that helped Pogachar win. And um, and he you know he said going into this race, he said, you know, our, our biggest handicap at UAE is that we don't have the experience that Ineos or even Jumbo Visma has of leading a three-week race and controlling it for three weeks. We don't have that kind of experience. That right now is, is our weakness. Uh, they've definitely beefed up the support in the mountains, um, but you know, the team's, the team's a bit beat up, too. I mean, uh, Mark Hershey crashed hard on that first uh, day. How good is he going to be in support? Like you just said yesterday, uh, a minute ago, um, uh, Brandon uh, crashed yesterday. I mean, every rider who crashes is going to be beaten up, sore, maybe not at their best, and maybe not at their best when you need them. 
Yeah, there's, there will be some windy stages. There should be some wind down in those stages after Vaughn 2. There's two or three days down there, uh, down the Rome Valley, and then coming across that valley, uh, coming from Carcassonne. Always a chance for wind down there. I mean, it's almost always windy down there. It's just a question of how windy it will be. So we'll see. You know, you get, uh, you know, Jumbo Visma, Ineos, you know, toss in Quick Step and uh, Abora Hansgrove, and you could have some very interesting race dynamics. I kind of hope to see something like that happen. Uh, last last year, um, Pogacar did lose. Uh, the only time he lost significant time in last year's tour was at Stage 7. Uh, but as a reader pointed out on Twitter, um, Pogacar punctured just as that group was splitting out. So uh, chances are he might not have lost that time last year had he not punctured right before the splits came. Uh, he's lost 120 on the stage to Lavore. And of course that set him up to, to be even more aggressive. As Fred Dreyer wrote in his column, you know, are we going to see a Pagacar ride defensively? You know, he has a lead now. Is he, does he ride defensively? Or do you think he uh, sticks with what works best for him? Well, it sort of depends at one point in the race, I would say. Um, if they're not confident about the strength of their team to to ride for you know three weeks at the front then he, you know we're going to the mountains in two days he's going to be you know he's he's the, he's the in best position uh to take over the yellow jersey uh but uh if you want to keep the pressure off well they may let a controlled break it away let some other sort of rider in the second tier take the jersey for a week knowing that they're going to finally you know fold or, or he can go on the attack in the Pyrenees or in the last time trial and get the time back and then all of a sudden you've got another team riding tempo at the front instead of your own team and taking the pressure off um, that would be you know say for, for example a viable option we'll see I don't know um, but uh, you know he's definitely the strong man of the race right now uh, and if he wants you know it seems like the way the, the way he's been riding it seems to me that the, the jersey is his when he wants it yeah, I agree. And I also believe that uh, if he has the legs, I mean, the adage is, if you got the legs, don't save them, use them. If you feel like you can gain an advantage on arrivals, especially in the mountains where it is much tighter, where the differences aren't usually as pronounced as they are, say, in a time Troy or in, in echelons. I remember last year, James, you pointed out that, you know, Pogacar lost time on the stage to La Loz, the big summit finish there, but he lost 15 seconds. So the time differences are never really that big in the mountains unless you really bonk. So I, my, what I think is going to happen is that they're going to have, they have to attack him, his rivals have to attack him, he can follow the wheels and then he can go over the top. I think he's going to expand his lead. I think he's going to come out of the Alps in the yellow jersey. I think he'll come out of Mont Ventoux in the middle of next week, really with the race firmly in his hands. Uh, he very well could, as I said. Um, the only, and I understand what you mean. I mean, it's like you never want to not take time uh, because you don't know how you're going to be the next day or two days. I mean, how many times when Chris Froome was on top of his game, did did Sky and Froome have a, you know, a kind of an off day, whereas if his rivals had realized that they could have maybe seized more time, that often would happen. But then, you know, they didn't. And then the next day, the next day after that, he got better and better, and they never had an opportunity. Sometimes you only have one or two opportunities, and if you don't seize them, then then you're uh, then you're you've lost you've lost an opportunity. At the same time, uh, if he's in if he's in yellow at the after the stage to Grand Bornon. Uh, it's still almost two weeks of racing, and they're going to have to control the race. So we'll see how it plays out. 
Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. Again, this weekend, the first two big mountain uh, stages of this year's Tour de France. Uh, it's over the top down to Grand Bornan at the finish in the valley. And then on Sunday, uh, the first real summit finish of this year's Tour de France in Tignan. And uh, there's even a chance of rain. So uh, stay tuned to the Velo News podcast. We'll be back again, checking in here live from the Tour de France. Andrew Hood and James Sart. What a lot.